Good morning. And welcome back. And for those of you, this is your first time. If you want to catch up on last week, there it's recorded. It's online. You can even download last week's. We don't have to download it if you're here because we printed it out again. So you can actually get both copies here. But if you're listening online, you can certainly download notes, which are meant to be helpful. If they are, use them. If they're not, I'm sure you can find other uses for that paper. So let's begin with prayer. Father God, we come to you and we're very grateful that we can gather and hear from you. And we ask that your spirit would enlighten the eyes of our heart to see more of your glory in the text of Ephesians this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes and that we would behold wondrous things from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, we'll pick up where we left off. Last week, we did the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, and now we're going to try to do 15 through 23. And I have less time constraints because I don't have to catch a flight at 2 o'clock. So I'll probably be a little less frenetic and crazy this time because I'm not in a hurry. And we could take more time and have some time for questions. Not that I intend to keep you here for more than a three, three or four hours, but... <laughs> right, exactly. So, just a quick recap, I suppose, of last week to catch us up. Um, Paul starts out this letter to the Ephesians. He's addressed it to the holy ones and the faithful ones. If you read verse 1, saints is what the English translations say the holy ones is. It's literally ones who have been set apart for God. And then he launches into the longest sentence in the Bible, I believe. I'm not sure. There may be a longer one, but I don't know of one. Verses 3 through 14, where he describes the blessings of God the Father, primarily through God the Son and through God the Holy Spirit. So the first, that whole sentence, that 11 verse sentence was, we, we read it and we see wonderful blessings for ourselves, but we need to keep in mind that verse 3 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that that's the subject of that sentence and the verb of that sentence. God the Father is, be, is. And he's the one who is the source of all blessings. He gives all blessings, and then there's those litany of incredible blessings in those verses. So now, after he gets through verse 14, and you can hear Paul have an exhale because he had a lot to say. He inhales again, and he's about to exhale another almost as long sentence. 15 through 23 is a sentence also, just so you know. He's going to do it again, just a little shorter, but not shorter on amazing wisdom and revelation, 
that we will look at. Totally off topic, but you showed us the Greek that you were reading from last week. Does the Greek have, do they use uh, periods and sentences? How, how, do they, how, how does it designate the end of a thought in the Greek? Just curious. Well, the Greek that we have today is a compiled version and it goes through committees and people, we've added punctuation. The original Greek didn't even have punctuation. But how, so how would you? Because of grammar, you know, a subject and a verb and then all the connecting phrases are going to be, all the relative phrases will have prepositions or of which or to which and, and you can tell by the grammar that they're all connected back to the main subject. So they figure out, okay, that means the sentence ends here. But clearly, if you look at the original, well, we don't have the original, but if you look at the oldest manuscripts we have, there's not even spaces between, between the words. And they're all caps, all caps, no spaces, and no punctuation. And and the way they copied it, it's like you look at the end of the column and they're in the middle of a word and the next letter of the word is over here at the other side of the column. And it's just just complete, it's it's pretty amazing to watch. Yes, and they, that was probably why they were doing it. They didn't, it wasn't like they were all wealthy and had loads of papyrus lying around. So they, uh, they carefully copied, but it's an interesting thing to see. And... Maybe I'll show you a copy of that at some point, or something what it looks like. You can see them online, actually. You can find these manuscripts. They're fascinating to look at. So the copy of the Greek I'm using is like a compiled version of all the manuscripts where through centuries of study and examining, they try to compare them all and see. Because there are a few differences here and there, and they have to decide which one is most likely what Paul wrote versus what was probably added by mistake by a copying scribe and there's these little variances and it's not they're not serious or not like they change the meaning or anything but they sometimes a copyist misspelled something or put a extra word in there or left something out and they decide that by looking at different manuscripts and seeing hmm which one makes the most rational sense and I don't really want to spend the rest of the time on that, but that's just to answer your question. The Greek that we have that I'm looking at is actually, uh, it's called the NA28, Nestle Alain 28, the 28th version of it. And they've been doing, Nestle Alain committee's been doing this for 150, 200 years, and they put out a new version every 10, 15 years. So the latest and greatest, Nestle Alain 28, and that's what's at the bottom of my footnotes there. In a 28 from the Greek New Testament. Um, so, and, and I've got a copy of my translation of this section. I put more time into this one. I've got more footnotes at the bottom. Last week I was rushed and kind of just spit it out there. This week it's a little more care put into it. So, anyway, what Paul begins with in verse 15 is. He introduces himself and he prays. He doesn't actually introduce himself, but he does switch to the first person because he actually says, I. The pronoun I shows up. And that's, that's the writer, that's Paul. And he, he starts out with saying, for this reason, 
for this reason. What I've just said, what I've just exhaled in all these verses about the glorious God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the blessings that have been pouring forth from Him since before creation, because He had it in mind before creation, and then He put it into action by creating and then redeeming through Jesus Christ, and then sending the Spirit to seal those who heard and believed the gospel. And that's where we were left at verse 14, is that we've been sealed by this Holy Spirit, and he, he's now the down payment or the guarantee, it says in ESV. He's, he's God's down payment, God's down payment on his possession that he's redeeming for himself, would be the better way to translate that, as I have in last week's notes, as opposed to how the ESV does it, because ESV actually makes it, turns it towards man, like it's a, a redemption, we're going to receive the redemption owed us kind of thing. It's like, well, it's, no, God is the one who's getting his redemption, he's getting his possession by putting a down payment of his spirit on his beloved ones, or the ones who have responded to him as holy and blameless ones. And now, for this reason, Paul is recognizing, I'm writing to faithful and beloved, uh, faithful and holy ones. And for this reason, I know that you're among these people God has, has put the down pain of the Spirit on. For this reason, when hearing of your faith, it says in ESV, I've translated the faith accorded you in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the holy ones. When hearing of your faith and your love, I have not ceased giving thanks and making mention of you in my prayers. So Paul is going to respond two ways. He's going to respond, first of all, we often read over this by giving thanks. Right? It says, I've not ceased giving thanks. I've not ceased giving thanks for you. Secondly, by making mention of you or remembrance of you in my prayers. So this is more this is a prayer, yes, but don't forget the fact that it's also a thanksgiving. The first thing out of Paul's mouth is I haven't stopped giving thanks for you. I've heard that you are among the ones who are now sealed and being purchased, being redeemed. And I am just thanking God for that. And I'm going to pray for you. And if you want to know what the subject and verb of this sentence is, it's basically that. It's I have not ceased giving thanks, praying and praying. So this is, a, this is Paul's prayer. Now, the interesting thing about his prayer is as he gets into his prayer, at the end of 19, it's kind of like he loses train of thought on prayer and he switches back to theology and explaining the awesomeness of God. And it's, it's like there's the prayer kind of, where's it end? You know, he just started praying and then, ooh, now he's back to describing God in verses 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and all of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3. And if you notice at the end of chapter 3, because for this reason I bow my knees before the Father and he, he prays again. Or in my, I would like to think he's finishing his prayer. He, he started his prayer. He got lost in the glory of God writing all about him. And then, oh, by the way, I better finish my prayer. And at the end of chapter 3, you have the amen. So I like to think of it as two prayers that are really one with a whole bunch of 
great biblical theology in between them. So he starts praying, and remember, he has not ceased giving thanks, and he has not ceased praying for them since he heard of the faith and the love that was within them. Um, I translated the faith accorded to them, and I'm going to make a little quick comment about that. It's not a possessive pronoun, so the your faith that you see in English translations isn't wrong, but that's not what it's actually saying. It's saying faith that has been granted to you, distributed to you, that is now evidenced in you. So it becomes your faith, but it's actually faith that's a gift from God. It's actually, the word actually implies, and I, th- I put that in the footnote down at the bottom, that the word implies that the faith was granted, given, distributed to them. And that's a point he's going to make in chapter 2, more clearly, when he says, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you all probably memorized that one. By grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So he's going to explicitly state that later. But right now he just kind of gives a clue that I recognize this faith that's among you. That means God has given you the faith, and you are believing because he's given you the faith. And it, yes, it's now your faith, but it was actually sourced in the Blessed One of God the Father. God the Father gave it to you through the Holy Spirit. And even the word for your love, I've got a footnote on. Um, that is a not just a, any old your love. That's a love that's very particular and obvious to these people. It's it's like a highlighted love. That's like it's a special kind of love. I see that love. And I recognize that love. Only that love can only come from God's holy ones, God's saints. Only God's saints love that way. They love other saints. They love all the other saints, all the other holy ones. So he's heard that this genuine faith exists among them and that there's this real love going on amongst them. And he gives thanks for it. And he doesn't stop giving thanks for it. And something to take away from this, I think, is don't think of prayer, as we always do, just as a time to ask God for help and bring requests. I mean, that's we all do that. We all ask God for help, and we all bring requests. But prayer is much more than that. Prayer is actually a conversation with God, and it's two-way, and I'm not going to talk about what prayer is. That's a whole nother teaching, but a part of prayer is thanking God for who he is. That is prayer. It's, it's You don't always just go to God and say, help, always. I mean, we most of us kind of, us, we go, help, but during the rest of the day, we could be saying, thanks, God. And that's a prayer, too. That's a thankful prayer. That's a, wow, Lord, I see you again. You're at operation again. You just, you, we could... We, instead of um, being upset that we cut off, got cut off in traffic and the fleshly thing come out, which isn't usually blessing, um, it could be a thanks, Lord, for preserving me. You know, that was a close one, that kind of thing. Thank you, Lord. So Paul is thanking and praying and hold those two together. Don't skip over the thanks part. And then verse 17 
He's going to start explaining the content of the prayer. 17, 18, and 19 are the content of the prayer. And then he kind of, like I said, drifts off back into explanation and and just explaining the wonderfulness of God. But the content, first of all, he's praying to a triune God. We see the Trinity in this verse. You can see it right there. I mean, I've listed it in your outline, but he's talking about the God of our the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's two mentioned there is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father, another name for the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the Father of glory, and then might give you the Spirit. So it's a prayer that the triune God continue to bless. The blessed one continue to bless through Lord Jesus Christ and through his spirit. So I have a question. So spirit, how do you because sometimes it's it's small case spirit. That's true. Person. So, how do you? What is the Greek that tells you that there is the Holy Spirit person as opposed to a spirit of wisdom, which would be small, small. Person? Right, and and the old ESV, an older version of the ESV, has a smaller and the A in front of it, a spirit, and the newer one they change it to the. The Greek isn't clear. The answer is the Greek is not clear. From context, though, and just thinking about what's being said, if you give a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay, I understand what he means by a spirit of wisdom, but I don't really understand what he means by a spirit of revelation. Um, a, God's, you're praying that God would give these people a spirit of revelation in the sense of receiving inspired scripture from God. Um, revelation is not a gift promised, you know, like personal revelation like Joseph Smith revelation or you know what, what does he mean the revelation part is what makes that challenging to try to wrap your arms around what is so that's why most people capitalize the the s some people don't is it is it other places where we would you know we see in our translation the, the Holy Spirit is it clearer in other places that it's or is that all yes it is okay, and is it just the use of an article that typically yes. distinguishes between helps us distinguish between a spirit and the, the Holy Spirit? Sometimes. Sometimes. This one has no article yeah. okay. in the Greek, and that doesn't mean it's not a the. It just means the Greek doesn't like to use the article in this case. Paul chose not to, and just because he left it out doesn't mean a. But it's it is a debate through church history, frankly. Some say a spirit, some say the spirit. The spirit, I believe, makes more sense because if you understand what's... Here's another reason I think it's the spirit of God versus a spirit God gives to us is that the other times he uses wisdom, this word for wisdom, which is the word Sophia. We like to name some of our girls after that. The other two times he uses it in Ephesians, he's clearly talking about the wisdom of God. One of them is in, uh, we talked about it last week, it's in chapter 1, where he says, in wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. And the wisdom is not, it's, it's God's wisdom in the context there. In God's wisdom and his insight, 
he chose at the right time to make known to us this mystery, which he kept hidden for ages, which will be talked about in chapter 3. He's going to get back to that in chapter 3. So that's one place where wisdom is, and the other place is actually in chapter 3, where it clearly is talking about the wisdom of um, of God. I'd have to look that one up, but we'll get to that. But it's also another wisdom of the Spirit kind of thing. Wisdom of God is making this happen. So Paul's using wisdom twice in chapters 1 and 3 that are much more clearly God's wisdom being in his wisdom he's revealing mysteries and not he's giving us the ability to figure it out ourselves which would be the other kind of wisdom or other kind of revelation like just give you a spirit that can freelance and figure it all out on your own that's that's what you believe I would I'm not going to say you're totally wrong it's possible that's what he's saying but it's just hard to wrap my mind around that that God would give us an independent spirit and an independent revelation in the knowledge of him. He gives us the spirit, and here's, here's a way to think of this phrase, spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. He gives us, well, we'll get to the knowledge of him. That's, that's another hole. In the knowledge of him, he reveals himself and we gain wisdom. You can look at it that way. In our the knowledge of Him, think of it as knowing Him and experiencing Him together. I'll talk about that next. As we know and experience Him, the Spirit reveals more about Him. He does it wisely, and yes, we do receive wisdom. So we do receive wisdom, but it's the Spirit of wisdom granting the wisdom by revealing God the Father, and God the Son, and their work, and their blessings, and their goodness, and their greatness, and their awesomeness. So the Spirit, he's praying that the Spirit would reveal God to us. Verse 18 actually says, enlightening the eyes of your heart, which I think is very helpful in explaining what that looks like. How do we get this wisdom and this revelation from the Spirit? He enlightens our eyes. The Spirit enlightens our eyes, that we may know certain things. So, hopefully that, well, that, that I know that would answer your question because you were just saying there's a difference in the A and the, the capital S and the little s, it's, it's translator's choice. And if you think about it, I think it's capital. It makes more sense to have the spirit doing all that. The um, But the other phrases, which... I didn't talk about the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory. They're, those are pretty interesting phrases if you stop and think about them. We hear it and go, oh yeah, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father. Father of glory, sure, whatever. Spirit of revelation, yeah, whatever. But you stop and you think about it. We've, we've already looked at the spirit of wisdom and revelation a little bit, but the God of our Lord Jesus Christ is actually, a, this is the only time it's stated this way in the Bible, and it's very odd because... Chapter 1, verse 3 said he was the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that makes perfect sense. But here he put the Father after Christ in the next phrase. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, like another whole phrase. But he says the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's, what's 
made people trip up over this phrase through the centuries. This has been dis- debated for centuries. Is what the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, call the Father God? Because he's God too. So why would God call his Father God? And that's where some people take this kind of verse, and there's others like it, and they say, well, maybe that suggests that the Lord Jesus Christ is a sub-God. If he's calling his Father God, and um, it's maybe he was created. Maybe he proceeded from God after, and it becomes what's known as the Arian heresy from the fourth century. Jehovah's Witnesses are the, four, are the carriers of that heresy today. They, they would translate that as the God of our sub-God, Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the texts they twist to make it say that. Now, how, how can we make sense of this? Well, think of it this way. I think this is the clearest answer, the clearest way to think of it. Okay, Father and Son, together in perfect harmony forever, both God. Holy Spirit too. Three of them. Community as Rich talked about in the message this morning. Creation happens and then midway through creation or at some point in the middle of creation God says, Son, go. Become a man. And at that point God the Son becomes a man. Now he's got a body. Now he's a human. And while he lived his human life he, it makes sense that he would call him his father God. He's a human God. The, Jesus is fully God and fully man. As fully God, he doesn't need to call his father God, but as fully man, he does. Because he's a man. He's actually a created, it's a created body. The body of Jesus Christ was created in the womb of Mary at a point in time. And he's still that body to this day. That body, the fully man part of Jesus, has it, it makes sense for him to call him God. And he actually did. He actually did. You remember where? On the cross. On the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He actually called him God. So Jesus called his father God. And just a note of that, <laughs> that's... Maybe the only time he called him God. There may be another one. I'm not sure, but for sure, uh, in Mark and Matthew, the gospel accounts, he cried, "My God, my God," and it's telling that he said, "My God, my God." I know he's quoting from Psalm 22, but he meant he didn't call him my father, my father, and that leads us to think that maybe at that moment he wasn't seeing his father anymore. His father had turned his back on him. And his father wasn't treating him like a son anymore. His father was, he saw the angry side of his father. He saw, for the first time, he saw wrath upon himself. And rather than relate to his father, his father is like, my God, you're, he's, he's God, you've forsaken me. So in that moment, he used the term God. And the way I just explained it, I think, that's pointing to the fact that he's incarnate. He's become a man. 
even in this phrase here. The God of our incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. It's making mention of his incarnation. He's come down to live among us. And as we'll see later, he's now raised from the dead, seated at the right hand. And he's still a man. He's still a man, even at the right hand today. That's weird to think about. There's a human being in heaven at the right hand, a physical human being. And you can just think about that. It's not like the Bible dwells on that and tells you what that looks like, because that's kind of like, what's that look like? Some smoke chamber and, uh, you know, lights show. I don't know. But um, that's where he's at. And he's interceding for us in a body fully like us. That's how, come he, that's how he could save us. He was totally like us in every way. And he still is, except without sin. So, the God of our incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, called out to God. Called him God. Okay? So that's, we've talked about two of the phrases. Spirit of wisdom and revelation. We've talked about the God, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. And the third one is the Father of glory. That's actually another unique phrase for God. And if you heard Rich's sermon this morning, you have a better feel for what the Father of glory may mean. He's the Father, you could say he's the glorious Father. He's the Father from whom all glory flows. There's a lot of possibilities here, and none of them are necessarily wrong. He's glorious. Glory flows from him. And just to pick up the glory theme that was in the previous verses, if you remember the previous verses, he said to the praise of the glory of his grace like three times. <clears throat> he did everything for his glory, for his glory, for his glory. And Rich, of course, brought that out, that God is glorious. And he, it was funny because some of the texts he brought up, I was going to bring up t- right now and explain the glory of God. But if you went to the service, you heard places where the glory is on display. The one that I wanted to just refer to was the Ezekiel one. Um, I'm going to see if I can bring that one up again. Ezekiel 1, because this is relevant to where Paul is taking this idea of glory. Ezekiel runs into the glory of God at the very end of Ezekiel 1, and the things that he describes are, just notice some of these things. I'll read it again. And above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne. In appearance like sapphire and seated upon the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. Cool, isn't it? A human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw it were gleaming metal, gleaming meaning shining, like the appearance of fire, so that's bright. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow, the rainbow, that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness. So he's described fire, brightness, gleaming, bright, bright, bright. Lots of light. The, the picture is very bright, very light, also very hot if there's fire, but bright, just blinding bright. 
Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That's the key verse that ties us to the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is full of light, very bright light, according to Ezekiel. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. This is the last few verses of chapter 1 of Ezekiel. Verse 28 would be the, the main one, if you want to take a note there. Ezekiel 1.28. So, the glory of God is very bright. And I thought it was interesting that Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would enlighten us to see it in his prayer. The Holy Spirit is the one who turned our blind eyes towards the glory and we start to see the brightness. And I think that's a helpful illustration of what the Holy Spirit is doing in chapter 1 and what Paul's praying that he continue to do is that the Holy Spirit would enlighten this Father of glory. That we who have believed will see a little more of his light every day. We will see this glory. The Holy Spirit is praying. Holy Spirit enlighten their eyes enlighten them continue to enlighten them you enlighten them already when they first heard the gospel and they believed they saw a little bit of light only what they could handle at the time but let them continue to see this glory of God let the light of his glory get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as they live as they walk through life and I believe that's what he's praying for. He's praying that the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him would enlighten the eyes of their heart. Think of it that way. Enlighten to see how glorious God the Father and God the Son are. Now, in the knowledge of him, don't you love how Paul just has these phrases that are they are very, this, I said this last week, he's very poetic. These are very poetic phrases. They're hard to understand. Poetry is hard to understand. But it's, they're beautiful. They're just beautiful phrases. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The God of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory. That's just flows. That's just beautiful language. And this whole, this whole chapter is like that. So, in the knowledge of him. In the knowledge of him. What is that? Now, the word for knowledge, it's, it's helpful to know, and I made a footnote about this too. The word for knowledge, there's two words for knowledge in Greek. There's gnosis and there's epinosis. Gnosis and epinosis. And they both are, we get the word knowledge from those Greek words. Actually, gnosis sounds a little like knowledge. That's where it comes from. And the, the words are used Sometimes it would appear interchangeably, but whenever Paul uses it in his prayers, not just the Ephesian prayer, but he prays similarly in Colossians and in Philippians, and he prays that you would grow in the knowledge of God in Colossians. Uh, it's this epinosis word, not gnosis, it's epinosis. And epa, epa is just a prefix, and it's, it's a prepositional prefix, and it means, by itself, epi means uh, about, on top of, within, around, close, kind of like. So um, it, it's used frequently. But when you throw that onto the gnosis idea, what you can figure, what you can deduce from that is, 
You know, there's knowledge, and there's epinology. There's there's knowledge. There's knowledge that you can gain strictly through your understanding. What I might call book knowledge. You can read about somebody, and you can learn a whole lot of facts about that person. But if he stays far away from you, like a historical figure, for example, I mean, you can read a whole lot about Abraham Lincoln, a whole lot about Julius Caesar, a whole lot about Augustus Caesar, a whole lot about King Henry VIII, a whole lot about even people just, you know, like FDR. And you can say, I know that guy. But the truth is you don't have never experienced the guy. So you don't really know him. You can't really say you knew those guys because they're dead, number one. And even today, I mean, you may think you know your president or your favorite celebrity or your favorite politician or your favorite sports hero, but if you haven't spent any quality time with them, you really don't know them. You only know about them. You haven't experienced them. That knowledge hasn't been emblazoned with experience. So the epinosis that Paul uses here is not just know about God and know every fact about him and know everything about Jesus Christ and know everything about the Spirit of God. It's experience it. Know him by living with him. Know what it means to have the love of God compelling you. Know what it means to have the comfort of the Holy Spirit enveloping you. You read about it, but he wants you to experience it. He wants you to, this knowledge to be made real by experiencing the real person. Like getting back to the example, you don't know these people who are far from you, but you probably know your spouse very well. It's a different kind of knowledge. You probably know your close friends and your children if they're living with you very well. But you don't know the mayor of Gilbert. Maybe some of you do, but I don't know. I may know about him, but I don't I haven't experienced them. So what Paul's praying for is that the spirit of revelation wisdom and revelation would enlighten our eyes as we walk with God day by day, knowing Him in the knowledge of God, the experiential knowledge of God. He's not saying you shouldn't learn about Him book knowledge. He's not saying don't read your Bibles or don't study or listen or anything like that. He's saying do more than that. Don't just, it's not knowledge, it's epinosis. It's not gnosis, it's epinosis. Experience. He's praying that the Spirit will open the eyes of your heart as you do regular life that these promises, these blessings of the triune God will become real to you in everyday life. As you walk through life, you're able to see the glory of God in those situations, including very bad situations, including suffering situations. You can, as you're going through trying times, you can... You can remember the promise and the Holy Spirit can remind you to cast your anxiety upon him because he, the glorious one, cares for you. And you can apply it and go, okay, okay, I won't 
I won't get super anxious here. I'll, the Holy Spirit just reminded me the glorious one cares for me. That's just an example of how we're supposed to, how the Spirit is operating. And, and Paul's praying that that be the case. And then he's going to get into further detail. And my outline said he prays for three things. Beyond this praying to the triune God, he wants us to have our, the eyes of our heart enlightened for three things. And you see them in the text. They, are, they begin with the words, what, 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 what is, what is, what is. He's praying that our eyes would be enlightened to see these three things in particular. And he lists them there. in verse 18 and 19. Enlighten the eyes of your heart that you may know, first of all, what is the hope of his calling, second of all, what is the wealth or riches of the glory, glory word again, of his inheritance in the saints or the holy ones, and thirdly, what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Those are the three things Paul is praying for, and I We'll go through those one at a time. The first two briefly, the third one in much more detail because Paul actually, in verses 21, 20 through chapter 2, first 10 verses chapter 2, he actually expounds that third one, surpassing greatness of his power. I think it's interesting to note, but if you, I think there's a little outline here. Paul's actually giving us an outline of how he, what he wrote in the first couple chapters of his of Ephesians. What is the hope of his calling is the first thing he, he's praying for. And frankly, I think verses 1 through 14 of chapter 1 expound that for us. What's the hope of his calling? If you don't know, read chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And I think you'll get a, you'll start to get a taste of what it is. Because remember what it, it says that God the Father, the Blessed One, chose us before the, found, before the foundation of the world. And he, in love, predestined us for adoption as sons. That sounds like a call. And then he literally does call at the end when the Holy Spirit calls to the gospel and you respond in faith and he seals you. So that's a calling. Okay, that's a calling. And there's a lot of hope in it. And... If you want to understand the hope of his calling, look look to those verses. And then later on, he's going to re- reuse this phrase when he gets to his um, chapter 4, when he starts out with, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The first command of the book. The first Chapter 4 is where he begins to put the commands out. Chapters 1 through 3, he's enlightening us to the glory of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with all kinds of amazing things. And then chapter 4 says, okay, now you guys walk in this. Walk in this calling of yours. So the the calling word will come up in chapter 4, verse 1, which kicks off the the second half of the book, which is the imperative, the command part of the book. First part of the book is truth. Theologians call it the indicative, which just means facts, truth. And that's chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 commands, imperative. 
indicative imperative, you could say truth, and commands. And we won't get much to four through six. We don't have time for it. But we will, like I said, I just highlighted something in four. And I, I will, when, the, when four, five, and six apply, I'll, I'll point to it. Because this, this uh, <coughs> series is really only has time to get through the first three. So that's the hope of his calling. That's the first thing. What is this hope of his calling? If you have, if it, and the way to see the hope of his calling, read the first 14 verses and meditate upon them and appreciate them. The second one, what is the riches or the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the holy ones, the saints? That's the second one. And he's going to skip right over that one and make you wonder what does he mean and get to that in the latter part of chapter 2. He's going to expound what that means better, more clearly in the latter part of chapter 2. So that's like a preview of coming attractions. But I will say this, because he did talk about the inheritance back in verse 14. So there's a little bit there, plus he's talked about glory a little bit. What's, what's really tripped people up through the ages is we, we can understand God's glory is full of riches and wealth. That's, that's not hard to imagine. And we know there's an inheritance. He talks about it, but he put the word, the preposition in, in front of the saints. And a whole lot of Bible scholars and theologians have wondered, Paul, did you make a mistake? Isn't it the inheritance for the saints or you know, given to the saints? or it, it, Why in the saints? Why is the inheritance in, in the holy ones, the church, if you will, the collected holy ones? Why is the inheritance in the saints? And there's a whole lot of people scratching their heads. Paul, where were you that day? Why did you put in there? Well, actually, I don't think it's that hard to see if you switch your way of thinking. Think of inheritance not as our inheritance, but as God's inheritance. His inheritance is us. That was the possession he made the down payment on in chapter in verse 14. He made the down payment, the redemption of the inheritance, his inheritance, that will come into full glorious fruition and we'll see it all, we'll be a part of it at the end of time. But we're his inheritance is what it's really saying. And you say, how can that be? I mean, how can we be his inheritance? That What's in us? Why would he see anything in us? Well, we kind of saw that last week. Remember... We're his children, number one, so he loves us. But think of inheritance this way. Just change the way you think about inheritance. I, I alluded to this last week when I talked about the allotment. That um, Verse 11, the, the verb in verse 11 is he um, made an allotment. He gave an allotment. It's not so much an inheritance. The ESV says inheritance. It's actually a different verb. It means an allotment. And it's pointing to the allotment of the tribes of Israel and Joshua where they received land, and the purpose of the land was they get to live with their family there forever, from generation to generation to generation. So the inheritance in Bible times wasn't what we think the inheritance is today. Today we think of the inheritance as the stuff that was left to us by grandpa or great aunt, whoever. So 
her car, her house that we can sell and make money off of, her jewelry, her laptops that might be less than 10 years old. <laughs> you know, it's like the stuff. The inheritance is all that wealth. And that's how we think. But that isn't how they thought. The inheritance to them was the land in which they would dwell as a family forever. They, that land would stay with them and they would stay with their family. The family would always have a place to live. The inheritance was the land, not the stuff. It was the place of dwelling. It was the dwelling place. The dwelling place was secure forever. Now, what God is saying here is his inheritance is in us means his future dwelling place is in us. He's going to come live with us. And he does that at the end of Revelation, if you read it. His inheritance, his dwelling place, his possession ultimately is us. He's made a down payment on us by, and he lives in us through the Spirit right now, but eventually we're going to live with him face to face. We're going to experience the inheritance, share it with Christ and with him, but he's got it. We're his inheritance. In the last verse of chapter 2, we'll actually say that pretty explicitly. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Where the church is the dwelling place. It actually says the dwelling place of God. The very last, Ephesians 2.22. The church, he's creating the church, joining us together to be a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So think of the inheritance, as Paul is stating it here, as God's inheritance in the Holy Ones. And then it starts to make some sense. I have a question. Why is it... I, uh, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, it makes sense. Why is there a division when scholars are in believing that it's our inheritance? I, I can't speak for scholars <laughs> through the centuries. I think it's just we have a natural tendency to read Scripture in light of us. It's just sinful nature. Not that it's wrong to think of it that way. We're always, we tend to look at Scripture for what's in it for us. I mean, we, we do that. We wake up doing that. We look in the text and we read it and go, that went over my head. Nothing there. And we're looking for that little gem to pop out. Boom, there's the, that's, that's the blessing for the day. And we skip over the rest of it. Because we're thinking, what's in this for me? So if you, it takes discipline to do this if you actually realize that Scripture isn't about us. It's about the glorious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can, you'll start to see that enlightening, that the light of the glory of God will come off the pages of Scripture even in the genealogies of all places, you can go, wow, God, look what you did with all these sinful people. You preserved them for generations. You're amazing. You know, you can worship God through a genealogy. I haven't done that lately, but in theory, you can do that. <laughs> so um, I can't answer for the scholars, but maybe it's because they just are, there's this natural tendency to try to turn everything inward. Just like the ESV translated verse 14, making the inheritance look like it's for us to obtain the inheritance when the Greek is actually pretty clear there that it's God's redemption of his inheritance. Because we just want it to be about us. Hey, we want the goodies. When in fact, the goodie is God and he's going to live with us forever. That's the inheritance. We get to dwell in his house forever. He dwells with us forever. That's what he wanted all along. 
according to verses 4 and 5, where he predestined us for the adoption. And he predestined the allotment in verse 11. The allotment he predestined, this allotment was predestined for us. For us, for him, for his glory. So the praise of his glory, right? I, even, I just did it right there, for us. No, it's for him. See, I, I, I even turned it on us. That's just the way we think. So those are those two. And then, um, wow, time's flying. The final one, what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? Um, And I listed this. I kind of broke it into two sections on the outline because he expounds upon this starting immediately in this text in verse 19 and goes all the way through about chapter 2, verse 9 or 10, explaining and letting us see the surpassing greatness of his power. And I would I characterize the surpassing greatness of his power in the final verses isn't towards us, it's towards Christ. And in the next chapter, it's towards us who believe. And the power, it's explained in verses 20, 21, 22, 23, is the power that he displays in Christ. And then he, then it turns to us in chapter 2, but it's it starts out saying you were dead in your sins, so it, it doesn't start out very well for us. And then the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, if you can read chapter 2's parallel in like verse 5, raised us from the dead. And the same power that he worked in Christ to seat him at the right hand in the heavenly places, he has seated us in the heavenly places. Chapter 2. There's parallels between the two, and we'll get into that next week in more detail. So he's this power. How do we know there's great power? Because the Bible tells us. And, and just to go over that phrase, surpassing greatness his power. That's another one of those poetic things that flows. The word surpassing means overthrown, like beyond you can imagine, kind of just can't categorize it. Way past past it. The greatness, the word for greatness here is only used here in all of scripture. And you've heard of like superlatives and there's great then there's greater, and then there's greatest. You've heard of the, the superlative train. You know, you start out with just, something's great, but this is greater, but this is the greatest. So that's kind of what's going on here, except this greatness is higher than the greatest. It's the next one beyond. More greatest? <laughs> it's, the, it's the most mo greatest. The mo greatest. The greatness that's beyond, surpassing, and he's using two words that mean you can't, comprehend how great it is. It's so great that Paul didn't invent this word. It is used elsewhere, but it's not applied anywhere else in Scripture. It's interesting. This is a one-time usage Uh, right here. Quick question on that, just for clarity. So is it, to take that word meaning more than greatest, is that where the surpassing comes from? No, they're they're separate words. Okay, so there is separate. I just didn't... They're they're separate words. So it's like saying more... That most is greatest. The most is greatest thrown well beyond the most is greatest, yeah. The power is way, 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 way beyond. So I say impossibly great, basically. There, there you go. Impossibly great. It's not a bad way of thinking about it. 
His power is so amazingly possibly past. We can't talk about it. Words fail, although Paul said it very beautifully here. And it's towards us who believe, which is amazing. Like, really? All we did was believe? Back in that. I don't want to derail you at all, but I just want to look at that. You spent some nice time on that inheritance in the Holy Ones. Mm-hmm. And then the towards us who believe. I kind of joke with my kids that, you know, life resides in prepositions mm-hmm. in terms of what, you know. <laughs> in the Bible it does, too. Well, yeah. So <laughs> if you look at those two in context with one another, do you see them as informing one another in terms of the towards us who believe, helping to understand the inheritance in the Holy Ones? Yeah. They're certainly related, and informing can be, uh, yes, to answer your question, yes, they okay. can. you can see it that way. And also, I just noticed something else while you were saying that, is that if you remember verse 1 of chapter 1 was, he's writing to the holy ones and the faithful ones, and that's here, inheritance in the holy ones, and the ones who believe are the faithful ones. Belief and faith is... Belief is actually the verb of faith mm-hmm. in Greek. It's like the word is, you know, it doesn't sound like, in, you know, faith and belief sound like different words in English, but in in Greek, the word for faith is, doesn't sound good, don't name your kid this, pistis. It's not a, not, not a kid's name. Pistis, and the word for belief is pisteo. So basically the faithful ones or the believing ones are, they're using those words, which, uh, like I said, not a popular term in our language, but that's the word. Suppressing greatness towards the holy ones and also towards the ones who are faithful. The power is towards the ones who are faithful. And then, according to the working of the strength of his might, there's another, there's another phrase, another one that just rolls off the tongue. According to the working of the strength of his might, the working of the strength of his might, Wow. I mean, might. Okay, here's here's the way the commentator that I, my favorite commentator, John Eady, and if you buy this, you'll probably leave it on your shelf because it's written, it's it's pretty pretty. Uh, it's there's a lot of Greek and Latin in here, and he wrote it, and I got the date there, 1853. And Spurgeon has an endorsement. <laughs> Literally, it's on the back of this thing. Spurgeon's endorsing this. Um, the Spurgeon. And Edie says, think of it this way: the might is the substance of his strength. That's the like the absolute. He's just flat flat out mighty. Strength is the adjective that modifies it. The strength of his might is very, very strong might and the working of the strength of his might is putting it into action for us. So it's like those the might that's, that's even mightier and greater and stronger and it's working. So it's just an interesting flow of words there. Kind of like an adverb, adjective, noun combination that all enhance one another to help you understand how beautiful this is. And then, he which he worked in Christ. So here's, here's where he, he says, this is where he gets off track of the prayer and he goes into, now let's just think about this great, surpassingly great power. And he's going to be into this for 
the next, I guess, 13, 14 verses. Just talking about primarily the greatness of his power towards us who believe. First is towards Christ, though. He starts out with Christ. It says, he first worked it in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So he did three things to Christ that demonstrate this. The Father did this. He raised him from the dead. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rulers and authorities and powers and dominions. It's another nice long poetic statement saying, and every name that is named, in case he missed anything, any, anything out there, any name, any authority, any ruler, any power, any dominion, he's far above it. God the Father took this God-man who died and he raised him and he seated him in his right hand. That's why I said there's a, there's a body up there. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, whatever that looks like. But we can imagine, try to figure out what that looks like. Um, the Bible perhaps explains that best in Revelation. And if you look at Revelation, you'll be scratching your head anyway, because it describes it in pictures that are unbelievable. So if you want to get a picture of what that might look like, read chapter 5 of Revelation and, and go, wow, that's weird, but it's beautiful at the same time. So he's seated up there, but the point isn't that he's seated up there so much as he's seated far above all rulers and authorities and powers and dominions, all of them. Every name is named. He is above it. He's above it. They're not on the same level as him. Way above. Far above. Far. Far above. And the rulers and authorities and powers and dominions, I believe they include humans, rulers, authorities, powers, and dominions and also spiritual ones. The spiritual ones will become obvious because in chapter 3, he's going to say the same thing and say in the heavenly places behind it. or He'll say a portion of this phrase. So he intends, he's talking about spiritual rulers and authorities. Doesn't explain what they look like. Doesn't give them names or their hierarchy or their pay grade or anything like that. He just says he's far above whatever they are, all of them. And the point is we need to believe that. We need to believe that this Jesus Christ is our Lord. This is, this is what makes him Lord. He's, the title Lord is because of where he's seated right now. He's far above all, all authorities. He's the Lord. So we had, earlier in the chapter, we had God is the Father, Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord. That's what this, the, if you want to know what he's expounding here, this is why Jesus is the Lord. He has been exalted far above all rulers, authorities, powers, and dominions. Okay, so question. So Jesus is always God. Yes. And so after, so God set him in his place. Where was he seated, seated <laughs> before he became Jesus? Because this looks like it's a change in position. The way the way it's pronounced is that he seated mm -hmm. him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Well, he was God before mm -hmm. he became before he came to earth, mm -hmm. so he was God before him. And then it says, and 22, he subjected all things under his feet and gave him head over. Well, he was God all along. Mm -hmm. So it's clear where he's at after his resurrection and mm -hmm. returning to heaven, but he was Lord before and he was God before. So this indicates like a transitional period that he was... Mm -hmm. 
in yeah. state A, and now he's in state B. Yeah, he's B, definitely in state B. He was, but he was God before state B. Yeah. So does that mean things weren't all subjected under his feet? And he wasn't the head before? So it's a little Yeah, it is. It's a little confusing there. It is. Because of his eternal existence and his coexistence as God the Son from mm -hmm. all eternity past and these pronouncements that make it sound like he got a promotion. Right. But we but, but at the same time he was God, so it doesn't seem like he could get a promotion because it's pretty hard but if you're already of surpassing greatness in the beginning, how do you get a promotion? So by becoming a human. Yep. The difference is he's now a human yeah. and he wasn't before. There never was a human in chart above all authorities before. Now there's a human. He's the first man to be in that position. Yes, he was God before. But now there's one of us up there. <laughs> one of us who is bringing us up with him. I was seems to go along with this, um, when you, where you write the power that set up our Lord Jesus Christ in three events, mm -hmm. set up, like, okay, what does that mean, set up? Can you flush that out a little bit? Because it sounds like the, what you just said. He's seated up <laughs> at the right hand. That's okay, all I meant. So, so it literally is just... He set him up there in this position of authority as a man. And, and the next verse, and he subjected all things under his feet is a direct quote from Psalm 8, a direct quote. And if you look at Psalm 8, I think this will all make a little more sense. When you see a correct quote in these letters, it's helpful to go read what Psalm 8 says. And Jesus, as a man, fulfills Psalm 8. I'll read it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. That's him creating. It's, it's one thing. There's many things coming out of that, but creation is part of that. To steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at, the, at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The word for man there happens to be Adam, by the way. What's Adam that you're mindful of him? And the Son of Man, that you care for him. Jesus called himself the Son of Man more than anything else. That was his favorite self-title. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The Son of Man is now crowned with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over all the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. There's the quote from Ephesians, in Ephesians. So the, Psalm 8 is basically saying, who are these, these humble people, these men? Adam, Adam didn't save us, but the Son of Man did. And he's exalted the Son of Man to fulfill Psalm 8. So it's a creation thing. It's, it's a, a, there's a created body, a human being now in, over all these authorities. And there wasn't before. So that's just a that that's Paul's going to Psalm 8 so I'm going to Psalm 8 and hopefully that helps clarify some of the thoughts there of what he may be saying what's the reference in Ezekiel 126 over there where <clears throat> 26 above the vault 
over their heads was what looked like a throne, and high above on the throne was a figure. With human appearance? With a human appearance, it says in the ESV, yeah. But Maybe he saw him ahead of time. I don't know. At this point in time, Jesus isn't, yeah. hasn't been, you know. Or maybe, been, maybe, he's, maybe he was seeing the future. I don't know, honestly. Yeah. Okay. Possibly. Could, like, could he have seen, like, a, like, could Jesus from past that point, like, when he went to heaven, have been seen when Ezekiel was looking at him because God is outside of time? Yes, that's what, that's what I just, right. Okay. I just that's a possible, that's, that's what I go to now. Maybe, maybe there's something else. But I, I can see God outside of time, therefore the human Jesus is Ezekiel seeing him before like like John in Revelation is seeing Jesus come back before we all do. So it's it's like God can certainly reveal the future to his prophets. And maybe that's what he was saying was Jesus seated on the throne before he was actually seated on the throne. And Daniel saw it too in Daniel seven, Son of Man. Enthroned with the Ancient of Days, he saw it too. The vision. He saw a vision and he wrote about it. So Psalm 8, I think, helps clarify the picture of Jesus is now the one with whom everything, all these authorities are under his feet. And that, that means a lot. I just want to say this. I realize, wow, it's getting long. I just wanted to say that thinking of Jesus as seated above all the rulers and authorities and powers and dominions is is where I go to these days because the rulers and authorities and powers and dominions of the world right now are they're bothering me <laughs> I don't like what they do I think they're they're being deceived by perhaps higher rulers and authorities spiritual there's there's all kinds of evil out there and I'm not I'm, I'm discouraged I'm discouraged with where our culture is going. But this is what should ground us. We've got, we've got one of ours seated above them, far above them, far above them. And he's putting all things under subjection under his feet. And we don't, we're the ones that see that. That's part of the hope of our calling is we have this and we can see it. And they can't. They don't know this is going on. They don't realize there's a hope the people out there who are afraid and don't know what is next, they don't see the Lord seated above it all. That's part of what we can, how we can bring it to them and say, hey, it's okay. We have the Lord seated above all of that. And I won't unpack the most difficult verse today, but I will bring out one thing. Verse 23, 22 and 23. The third thing God did, besides raising Jesus from the dead and seating him at the right hand, is he gave him as head over all things to the church. He gave Jesus as head to the church, the gathering of the holy ones and faithful ones, which is his body. Now think about it. The rulers and authorities are beneath his feet. He's the head. We're the body. So the rulers and authorities... They're below us. Yeah. 
according to that picture. So the church, the church is above the fray. Now, not we're experiencing it, but we are secured in a way that the rest of the world isn't. And you can see that picture in Revelation as you read it. One way to read Revelation the right way is <clears throat> recognize recognize that it's you've got the Lord calling the shots. Those bowls of wrath are coming from Him. They're not coming from the bad dude. They're coming from the, the Lord. Those trumpet blasts with those plagues are coming from him. He's actually the ruler, and he's doling out judgment. It's Jesus who's seated at the right hand of God in charge. And um, it's helpful to recognize that as you read Revelation. Not be scared of all the bad stuff. And think that it's all coming from the beast and the dragon. The beast and dragon actually don't do a whole lot in Revelation. They're kind of, they're not, I wouldn't call them bit players, but they're certainly beneath players. So anyway, just a, a picture of what that may look like, and that's, that's just a, a hint on Revelation. But God gave Jesus as the head to the church, head of the church, and he's the head, he's over all things, that's kind of referring to the things of all things beneath his feet, but he's the head of the church, which is his body. So we're connected to him in an interesting way that will be unpacked <clears throat> in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. And um, he also says, one other interesting thing, that he's the fullness. The church is the fullness. Notice what it says. That, that's, that's another one of those. How could that be? Over all things of the church, the church, which is the, his body, the fullness. The church is somehow the fullness of him. And I'll just, and who fills all in all, or all things in all things. How are we the fullness? And people could debate, how could possibly the church be the fullness? We're the fullness because we're the dwelling place of the glorious one. And within the church, the glorious one dwells. The Son, the Spirit dwells. And the fullness of God is on full display. The glory of God is on full display. The glory of God is displayed to the world through this church. The fullness that's his body is really him filling it up. I'll just leave it there for now because i got to bring this to an end. And I promise that I will unpack that on a future session down the road. Just add one other thing. Um, 20, let's see, yeah. 20 and 21, I mean, really, that's expounded in even greater detail in Hebrews 1. Yes. Hebrews 2 also. Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 8. And uh, actually quotes a lengthy part of Psalm 8 and exegetes it for us. Exactly right. So, sermon, the service is over. I better close this. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for sending your spirit. Please enlighten our eyes. Continue to enlighten our eyes. Continue to remind us of the hope of our calling and of the wealth of the glory of your inheritance in us and the surpassing greatness of your power. Please let that keep us faithful. Keep us holy and keep us together in you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.
Thanks, Jim. Yay. Yay.